Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Where's the applause? Where's the applause? Is there no applause tonight? Is there no help for the widow's was It was playing on my end. I don't know why it wasn't playing for you guys. Well, obviously, they like you better than they like me because I heard nothing. I I probably was the only one who heard it. Something. uh, I did an episode earlier this week where it played the intro two tracks of it at the same time that sounded really horrible. But uh, yeah, I heard that. I always say. Boy, that <laughs> just cut that right off. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, thank you. I have a T-shirt on. Captain America. It's Captain America. Absolutely. Look at that. Legendary dad. This was a Christmas gift from my daughter in Utah, who I'm doing a big shout out to right now. How many uh, kids did Captain America have? I have no idea. None that I know of. Mm. So I don't you're think a better, dad. Was you're a better dad than him. Well, thank I, you. That's high praise indeed. <laughs> I just wanted to say I'm, I'm having a hard time because I'm, yeah, I'm in my, my new desk system. But I've got uh, just a uh, shout out um, Exmo shirts. So, yeah, I've, I, I, this is a new one from uh, that I bought. So, yeah. And uh, Exmo shirts obviously also has our stuff, with the logo on, which I repped, if not last week, the week before. And so I just wanted to put that plug in there real quick. And, then I'm and I'll throw I'll throw a link to their their uh, website with our merchandise up in the chat. Folks can look there. By the way, we're almost at the end of the year, um, folks. If you're if you would like to become a, either a recurring donator or throw a few bucks our way, let me change the screen there. A few bucks our way, please uh, do so. We'd love to love to uh, have you support the show in that way. There's lots of other ways to support the show. We talked about that last week, but one of the things we didn't mention. Uh, I don't think was the Amazon purchases. Maybe Maven mentioned it after I was done, but the Amazon purchases, if folks will purchase stuff through Amazon using Amazon Smile, designate Mormon Discussion Incorporated as a charity. uh, And then some of that, those purchases, a little bit of that change comes our way and we really appreciate it. But I'll put in the chat uh, the merchandise and RFM. Otherwise, my friend, I'll turn the time over to you. Well, thank you. I want to talk tonight about an unsettling experience I had back in 19... 89. I was 29 years old. I've been through law school. I graduated law school. That was in Texas, by the way. Went up to Washington, spent two months living up here and studying for the bar exam, which I took at the end of July 1989. Then you got to wait for several months to get the word whether you passed or failed the bar exam. I'll let you guess what it is that happened to me. I passed. I was so happy. I'm sure it was just by the, the skin of my teeth. But I didn't find that out until October. And you get that envelope and you're going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, this is worse than a mission call, at least for me. So during that time period, though, August, September and into October of 1989, I'm back in Texas. I'm hanging out. I'm working half time clerking and I've got more time on my hands and I'm reading, which I tend to do. And I read about Mormonism 
which I tend to do. And as you'll recall, if you know anything about me during the 1980s, I am heavily into Mormon apologetics. I wanted to be the Book of Mormon answer man. And by the end of the decade, I felt that I had achieved that legendary status of Book of Mormon answer man. You remember, I even did an entire um, institute course, 12 lessons about defending the faith. That was in the spring of 1989 before I went to Washington for the bar in the summer. I come back and now somehow, and I don't know how, I'm trying to broaden my reading. And I got a hold of a 1985 issue of Sunstone Magazine. And there was an article in there and it was called Spirit Writing. And I read this article and I was very, very disturbed by what I read in this article. And it's one of those articles that when you're a believing and devout Latter-day Saint, sometimes you have the experience of reading something and then wishing that you had not read it and then working hard to forget that you read it. And that was the experience that I had with this article because it struck so close to home. And one of the reasons is, is because one of the foundation elements of the Book of Mormon, uh, there's lots of things when you're an apologist, you know, there's lots of, there's chiasmus, there's uh, all sorts of things that show the, the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. But one of the main components of that is the manner in which it was produced. And this gets a lot of play in apologetic circles and in non-apologetic circles, that Joseph Smith dictated the entire text of the Book of Mormon as we have it today in approximately three months. And there's a lot of stories about that, as we know, that he would go out, uh, he'd leave off dictation, he'd go out, they'd do something, they'd skip stones, they'd have dinner, they might even you know, go to sleep for the night, they had to do that. And then he'd come back to the dictation and without having anything read back, he'd start off again. And he didn't have to be cued on where it was that he was in the dictation process. He would just pick up where he had left off. And just all these words coming forth from Joseph Smith with very little in the way of correction afterward. Obviously, grammar has been uh, modified a lot since then, but really very little in the way of tweaking it after it came forth from Joseph Smith. So. Having said all of that, when I read this article, it dealt a hammer blow to my testimony. It didn't completely destroy it. No, I was a member of the church for uh, three decades after this. I still am today. But as we go through this, I hope that you will put yourself in my shoes back in 1989 and feel with me what I felt then as much as you can. And maybe you'll be able to appreciate why it is that this was so disturbing to me when I read it. The subject is spirit writing. It's also called automatic writing. This is an article that was written by Scott C. Dunn, D-U-N-N, no relation that I'm aware of to Paul H. And hey, Maven, how you doing tonight? Hi there. I, I just wanted to jump in real quick and, um, and say that, uh, yeah, we've got to change the, me, see, I'm not as good <laughs> as Bill with this part. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say Brian Hales in the comment section on your Facebook page would also agree with you um, 
that this is just it's just too much for Joseph Smith to have been able to do. And so um, and I did just want to jump in and say just a real quick precursor. We had uh, Brian Hills on the thumbnail for this. And originally the uh, the episode was going to dig much more into things that Brian Hales has said, but there's so much to automatic writing that basically that's, we kind of changed to this, but we still want to make sure Brian Hales is involved. So we've, I've made sure that he is, and it's mostly through his comments uh, on the, underneath the thumbnail on RFM's page. And I think they really still add to the show. So that's just a, a heads up. Thank you. And by the way, for those of you watching live, we were about six minutes late getting started. The reason why is because Maven has been doing all this work since our meeting this morning where we went over tonight's show. And she's done so much work to make these slides so much better and adding comments from Brian Hales as well. We were not trying to do a gotcha with Brian Hales. Actually, we were going to talk more about Brian Hales in the first part. And then the second part, it was going to be automatic writing. But I started researching this a couple of days ago. And by researching, I mean outlining. And it became rapidly clear to me that we were not going to have time to do both of those parts. Each of those parts would be its own episode. Maybe we'll get to the other part some other time. But we're just focusing on automatic writing tonight. And yet Brian Hales went in the comment section. He made a number of statements, which will be, I think, interesting as we go through tonight's discussion of automatic writing. It's pretty amazing, <laughs> I gotta say. But I'll drop off and I'll, and I'll run the slides, so. Okay, thanks so much, Maven. All right, well, in this article from 1985, Sunstone, Scott Dunn gives a definition of automatic writing. And Bill, can you read that for us? It's on, well, I don't know that I need to announce what page it's on. We'll have a link to the article itself in the show notes, I'm sure. Yep. But here's a nice uh, definition after you get through the first sentence and i'm not expecting anybody to know who these people are right now but the part that starts with this term of automatic writing this term refers to the ability to dictate or write material in a relatively rapid seemingly effortless and fluent manner moreover the practitioner of automatic writing does not consciously compose the material indeed except for sometimes knowing a word or two moments in advance of writing or speaking, the individual is typically unaware of what the content of the writing will be. Yeah, and let me say that last sentence again, because that tricked me. Remember when we were rehearsing this this morning? Indeed, except for sometimes knowing a word or two, moments in advance of writing or speaking, the individual is typically unaware of what the content of the writing will be. So that's a working definition of automatic writing, which is a phenomenon that has occurred on a number of instances throughout history. And this paper talks about a number of those. This automatic writing is also called spirit writing. And I think that the reason it's sometimes called spirit writing, and that was the name of the article, is because frequently, pretty much all the time, there may be exceptions. The idea is that there is a spirit entity or some kind of entity that is separate and apart from the person who's doing the writing. And the person who's doing the writing is writing down what's being communicated to them by this otherworldly entity. So that's why it's sometimes called spirit writing. I Maybe, did you want to, yeah, did you want to say something or did you want to read I, the next slide? I actually both? want to, I want to share my screen uh, really quick. Um, this is, uh, so just, it goes brilliantly with what you just said. 
for those in our audience that were not watching Mormon stories up until just a few minutes before the show started with Mark Schultz, there is a part of his story where a member of the church, um, for those who don't know, his, his brother was murdered. And um, shortly after that, a member of his ward basically did this, said that he was channeling Mark's brother and wrote him a three-page letter um, basically talking to Mark from his brother from heaven. So I'm just staring my screen. This is this is the episode. Um, well, let me let me actually put it on there. Hold on. Sorry. Here we go. Um, yeah. So this is the letter that he actually because he still has it. So he read this word for word um, from again from a member of his ward who I was out jogging or something and felt that he was channeling Mark's brother. And I wish we had time to listen to it. It is wild and awful i guess in but, but i mean you can see he's smiling so it's a, a very entertaining kind of a way but this is something that definitely could be really malicious but anyway that's it just an interesting crossover uh to our topic tonight yes and you know something sometimes a coincidence really is just a coincidence right unless there's some kind of divine being who's working things to his or her will to make these things happen within hours of each other but that's really interesting. So this idea about spirit writing, Maven, as long as you're here, can you read the next slide? Sure. Let's see. All right. Um, so this says, uh, many, many people who produce automatic writing attribute its composition to an outside intelligence. In some instances, such as those cited above, this external consciousness may have a name and personality all its own. These so-called channeled texts frequently revolve around some sort of religious theme. Yes. And if any of you out, out there are starting to think this is sounding eerily like the Book of Mormon, you're not alone. So we Just took wait. that quote. It talks. What? Just I'm sorry, what, Bill? Oh, yeah, I know. It gets uh, better or worse, depending on your perspective. It was worse for me when I'm 29. It's not so bad for me now that I'm 62, but it took a lot of getting used to. So this is how it starts there. It starts with three famous examples of automatic writing in the first three paragraphs. And the first one goes like this. And then I'm going to turn it over to Bill for the second one and Maven for the third. Hopefully this is how it starts. This is a course in miracles. Please take notes. That's a quote. With these words, a Columbia University medical psychologist and self-proclaimed atheist was introduced to an inner voice which identified itself as Jesus Christ. Acting against her skepticism, because of course, if you're an atheist, you would be skeptical of something like that. Acting against her skepticism, the psychologist known simply as Helen, obediently began dictating the words of the voice to a colleague. Now note this is a dictation. Some automatic writing is actually done by writing. Some is done by dictation. So Helen began dictating the words of the voice to a colleague. The result after 10 years was a 1500 page manuscript that was published in 1976 as a three volume work called A Course in Miracles. Today, thousands of people in 47 states, I don't know what's wrong with the other three states, but today thousands of people in 47 states and 15 countries study individually or in groups the words of this massive work which promises to bring the miracle of love, the miracles of love and inner harmony into their lives. Now, I was aware of this book. 
a copy was given to me. You know how we give out copies of the Book of Mormon? Well, I was given a copy of this book. It was paperback. It's big. It's intimidatingly big. And it was given to me by a fellow attorney. So obviously, this fellow attorney felt that it was significant enough and he wanted to share it with me. I don't think that I still have it. I think it may not have survived the last move, which is the same fate of many a Book of Mormon, I understand. And just to know, this would be about three times. Again, I don't know what a manuscript page turns into in a typed out printed book form. But as you're pointing out, the paperback book that you got was quite thick. Mm. So maybe two to three times the length of the Book of Mormon, for instance. Probably about three times, roughly 1,500 pages. And they do try and make it small because they're trying to conserve money on the paper. Yeah. So the second example of automatic writing is the the Seth books. Can you read that, Bill, the next paragraph? We're not going to read, by the way, every paragraph in this tonight. I've gone through and I have picked and selected for the outline in order to give hopefully maximum effect. But here's the second paragraph and the second example. Two years before this voice made itself known to Helen, another woman, Jane Roberts, began to experience psychic forces in her life. A novelist with no particular interest in the occult, Roberts conducted experiments in this new domain, which soon led her into contact with Seth, a discarnate personality which spoke through the medium of Robert's mind and voice. In these sessions, Roberts lapsed into a trance while Seth lectured on complex philosophical and metaphysical subjects quite beyond the educational experience of Jane Roberts herself. By recording Seth's dictation, Roberts and her husband produced well over a dozen books which have acquired considerable popularity with the religiously and mystically minded segment of the American reading public. Any comments about that, Bill or Maven, before we go to the third one? Okay, Maven, we'll number three. Again. All right. Um, equally curious is the case of Levi H. Dowling, a man born just a month before the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. Dowling, who pursued careers as a pastor, medical doctor, and writer, experienced visions from childhood and was eventually commissioned by, I don't know if it's Vissel, the goddess of wisdom, to record the Aquarian gospel of Jesus the Christ. This scripture-like production purports to be a transcription from the Akashic records recounting a heretofore unknown ministry of the Savior. I know it sounds like, sounds like the one that uh, Jesus did to the uh, Americas. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, it's this a transcription. Word, yeah. from other records in, a, in an ancient language. This work, which is still available in bookstores today, comments on the natures of God and man, prophesies its own coming forth, and contains many other teachings familiar to Bible-reading Christians. This one I really like because the title is The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ. And when it says the in there, you know it's true. Elder Talmadge gives his nod of approval. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Um, okay, so there's three examples. These aren't even the three uh, most uh, examples that are most like the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's production of the Book of Mormon. But what I'm starting to see as I'm reading this article is that the Book of Mormon is not unique in the manner in which it was translated or dictated. It actually falls into a class of other books that have been produced in similar ways. So I think you can understand why it was that this was quite disturbing to me. In fact, there are scholars who study automatic writing and the different automatic writing texts that exist. And they write 
articles about it, just like there are scholars who write about the Book of Mormon or the Bible or whatever. The interesting thing is that scholars who write and are knowledgeable about the phenomenon of automatic writing commonly include the Book of Mormon. These are non-Mormon scholars, but they include the Book of Mormon as an example of automatic writing. Do we have that slide? Maybe she already changed the slide while I was talking. Yes. So this, this one says, if you go down after the first paragraph, well, let's just start from the beginning. Interestingly, there are a number of significant parallels between such instances of automatic writing and events in the life of the prophet Joseph Smith. Indeed, historian Lawrence Foster and other non-Mormon authors have suggested that automatic writing was the very method through which Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon. Such a claim, if correct, can have many important implications for the way we approach our Latter-day Scriptures. And then it says, before exploring the validity of this contention, however, it will be helpful to acquire a greater understanding of the various forms, techniques, and causes of automatic writing. So the next one he's going to give is an example, another example of automatic writing called OWASPE or OWASPE, O-A-H-S-P-E. And Bill, would you be able to read this next slide? Yep. So many people who produce automatic writing attribute its composition to an outside intelligence. In some instances, such as those cited above, this external consciousness may have a name and personality all its own. These so-called channeled texts frequently revolve around some sort of religious theme. For example, the OHASPI, uh, a work belonging to this genre, I don't think I said it the same way you did, but work belonging to this genre claims to be a new Bible in the words of Jehovah and his angel ambassadors. Like the conventional Bible, this volume consists of various books and includes an account of the creation and early history of the earth, as well as doctrinal and prophetic discourses. Interestingly, this 1882 production, created automatically through the typing of dentist John Newborough, was uh, also contains several lines of unusual characters or hieroglyphics, which are translated in the book's glossary. So here's a fourth hmm. example of automatic writing. It's a famous one. Bill, did you have any comments about that or Maven? Well, the hieroglyphics obviously has a connection to Mormonism. Um, it, it, as we're going to go through the night, there's just so many of these connections. And I'll just say, I spent the day after I got off the phone with you guys this morning, I spent the day on YouTube and looking up uh, a few podcast episodes on automatic writing. There are numberless examples of this being done. There's a, I've shown you guys this morning, there was a girl on YouTube who was just for the first time, like trying to learn how to do it. And she started off with squiggles and then she suddenly started writing out thoughts that apparently were not her own. And the ideas conveyed were very different than something a person in, her the year she lives in which is now would write um people have found like some of these automatic writers have found buildings that they knew you know that, that they were told existed uh, from an outside source in in the modern moment let me try if i can explain this better um the glastonbury abbey is one example of this where uh, a person knew that there were buildings on the property but they didn't know where the buildings were and then this outside source through automatic writing told them where these buildings were and they found them to the point where the community celebrated this person. And even though they had no training, they awarded them to be like the archeologists for the, this private 
grounds. Um, so, so when you're saying buildings, are you talking about ruins that like, were under yeah, the ground ruins and not readily observable? Yes, like old ruins underneath the ground. He was able to find them. He's, he had no training, but it essentially does it. My, my point being is that when you study all of these cases that we're going to go into tonight, as well as 50 others, they're very strange. Again, I'm not saying I'm convinced by them, but I am I, I'm given pause. And there seems like there is something going on that we don't quite have the ability to explain yet. Very good. And as we go on, we'll see how well the Book of Mormon production, as currently taught by the LDS Church, fits very nicely into this class of writings. Now, the next one is, I think, the most famous one, at least to me personally. It's called the Urantia Book. Have you ever heard of that, Maven? You're paused, Maven. You're muted, Maven. I didn't want to say it. You're, you're <laughs> muted. Glass I feel houses. like I have. That might be but... a first for you. No, I think it's actually the second time, maybe. I think it, I, I feel like it happened last week. But anyway. We've um, all had one or two. Yeah, or or a hundred. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, yeah, your question was, I, I, I think I have heard of it, but I've never explored it more. And, and so I wouldn't have been able to roll that name off of my tongue if you had asked me before looking into this. So. And, and your answer actually within the context of the book means the earth. It's a, the name for the earth in some other language. Do you want me to go ahead and read this quote here? Would you please? That'd be great. Okay. Probably better known is the Urantia book, a 2100 page library of cosmology, philosophy, and religion published in 1955. Disciples of this work consider it to be a divine revelation, uh, a work that will that will quote unquote will change you. It is said to answer the three most vital questions being asked on earth today, namely, who am I? What am I doing here? And where am I going? Huh. That sounds vaguely familiar, familiar to me. To me. <laughs> yep. I know back when I joined the church back in 78, the missionaries were told to ask these. These are the golden questions. They would ask everybody these questions as a means of introducing Mormonism to them because we have answers to those questions. They may or may not be the same answers as provided in the Urantia book. I suspect not. Probably not exactly. Now we get to some of the ways in which these texts are produced. And there's a nice picture of the Urantia book. It is massive. It is absolutely, it's 2,100 pages. Yeah, it's huge, huge, huge. Um, so we get to some of the methods by which these are produced. And these include crystal gazing or even stone gazing. I guess crystal is a form of stone, isn't it? So if we have the next slide, and I'll go ahead and I'll read this one since I think it's my turn. Others use different implements to produce automatic writing. Stone or crystal gazing, sometimes called scrying, for example, is a well-documented method of stimulating this kind of writing. In most of these instances, the individual gazes into the stone or crystal and experiences some sort of vision while the hand writes automatically. This writing typically reports information seen in the vision. In some cases, the stone gazer's vision reveals written words rather than events. For instance, one woman relates, quote, I had been trying to obtain automatic writing while looking in the crystal. I was also wondering who had put a pair of lost scissors in a very conspicuous place where I had just found them. 
I saw a name written and found that my right hand had written the same name. We're going to need the, uh, the rest of that. Do we have the rest of that, Maven? Right, the same name. I found that my hand had written the same name. Other individuals' dictations describe what is seen in the crystal. As an example, one psychologist reports the case of a young boy who, though considered stolid and unimaginative, dictated a fantastic adventure story which he saw enacted in a crystal while his hand wrote automatically at the same time. Hmm. Any thoughts about that? Sounds a little bit like uh, our uh, local town scryer from Palmyra. Yeah, it's this use of the stone or crystal in order to stimulate automatic writing, sort of as a focal point of some sort. And interestingly, there's a case of a young boy who is not very learned, not very imaginative, and yet he writes a fantastic adventure story, something completely unlike him. And when I see that, I think of the stories about Joseph Smith being uneducated and not able to produce the Book of Mormon by his natural abilities. We'll find more about that later on in the article with other instances of this. So now, oh my gosh, okay, hold on to your hats now. If we go to the next quote, we'll find that uh, the people, some people who do this, and there's actually two different instances of this. This is the first one. We'll talk about the second one later, that they're actually able to continue writing even after a break in writing without having any of it read back. Now, uh, Maven, is it your turn? No, it's Bill. She's pointing up. I can see her from here. Bill, it's your turn. All right. A number of people, including Jane Roberts, create involuntary script while in a trance. Nevertheless, many automatic writers produce their works while fully awake and alert. This is the case with Helen, the woman through whom A Course in Miracles was composed. One writer reports that... Uh, if the, quote, telephone rang during a dictation session, she could interrupt to answer it. The voice, which dictated the work, waited patiently for her to return and then resumed in mid-sentence, if necessary, exactly where she had broken off, unquote. Hmm. Right. And that's in, in an article from Psychology Today. Of course, we all, we're all familiar with the story about Joseph Smith being able to do the same thing. And of course, I'm reading this and I'm reading more and more similarities and I'm getting more and more disturbed back in 1989. I don't know if anybody's listening to this is having a similar experience right now. So that's one thing there. That's another thing there. Excuse me. Also, we are often told that Joseph Smith's creation, dictation, translation of the Book of Mormon is phenomenal in that it reflects things that are in it that were beyond his knowledge or his comprehension at that age in his life based upon his education. Well, lo and behold, we find the same sort of thing with automatic writing. And now, Maven, is it your turn? Yes. Um, okay, thank you. Right. Is this the right, as with method? I, I, I feel can like double check. Back in school, or like, am I or reading the right verse? Yes. All right. Yes, you are. Thank okay. you. Okay. The quality of material obtained through automatic writing varies widely widely much of it is as one author observes taken up with platitudinous moralizing or verbosely expressed spiritual philosophy most of it inferior to what the writer could produce in a normal fashion however 
This is not always the case. Some works seem to exhibit writing skills and awareness of facts far beyond those which the individual normally possesses. For example, in speaking through Jane Roberts, the personality of Seth once carried on a conversation with a professor of psychology using appropriate terminology and making reference to esoteric philosophical theories of which Jane herself had no apparent knowledge. The psychologist later wrote, um, that he, and this is the quote, chose topics of conversation which were clearly of tolerable interest to Seth and considerable interest to me, and which by that time I had every reason to believe were largely foreign territory to Jane. Also, I chose to pursue these topics at a level of sophistication which I felt, at least, made it exceedingly improbable that Jane could fool me on. So impressed was he by the results that he affirmed, I do not believe that Jane Roberts and Seth are the same person or the same personality or different facets of the same personality. So very interesting that Seth, the disembodied being who is giving this information to Jane Roberts is apparently able to discuss matters in a depth that Jane Roberts herself likely could not have done on her own. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that this is where it starts to get weird for me. Like up until now, my skeptical mind can kind of just dismiss all of this out of hand. But as we go from here, kind of going forward with some of this other material, you start to notice that there are third parties who come in late. Um, and as people, as other parties, besides the folks who are uh, suggesting that they have this ability, there are these other parties that come in later start to kind of compare these texts to things, start to try to question the folks who claim that they're giving this writing from some other source. And it starts to all get kind of weird. It, it begins to kind of look like, again, something's going on here that we can't quite explain. Right, and so scholars, of course, have looked at this and they're trying to figure out what is causing this. Obviously, we have these books, they exist, they are a fact. And how do we account for the manner in which they were produced? Well. You could just take these people's word for it and say, well, Seth wrote this or whoever wrote this and channeled it through the person who dictated it or wrote it out at their behest. On the other hand, that doesn't have to be the explanation. And a lot of people who are scholars in this, and I think probably a lot of people in the audience already saw a comment that went up that indicated this. They think that it probably has something to do with the subconscious of the individual manifesting itself in a way that is foreign or unknown to the conscious self, such that it seems to be someone from outside giving this information. And we have a slide on that too, I think, where it says, partly for this reason, many students of automatic writing have sought another, other explanations for this phenomenon other than it's just what they say it is. Although research in this area has been relatively scant a number of the available studies suggest that both the content of automatic writing and the spirit personalities purported to produce it are creations of unconscious levels of the human brain. Indeed, information found in automatic writing can very often be traced to events, facts, or ideas to which the automatic writer was exposed during his or her lifetime. Now, I certainly, uh, I haven't done the kind of investigation that scholars of this have, but I immediately lean toward the subconscious as being a likely source for this. 
But it's really interesting that information found in automatic writing can very often be traced to events, facts, or ideas to which the automatic writer was exposed during his or her lifetime. Well, if we're talking about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, I would say the Book of Mormon beginning to end contains events, facts, and ideas to which Joseph Smith was exposed during his lifetime. From his father's dream of the tree of life to the entire mound building scenario and the origin story for the Lamanites being a dark skinned people. And there used to be a light skinned people. This is all the mythology that was in circulation in Joseph Smith's milieu. milieu. I'm, yeah. I'm working on pronouncing that word correctly. Milieu, I think is how I've been taught to say it. So that's very interesting to me as well, because that helps account for all these things in the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith would have encountered in his own environment. Bill, you wanted to say something? Yeah, just that um, in within this concept, you know, the, only, the the church has on its record the statement that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth, and if anyone abide by its precepts, you know, the quote that we've all heard a hundred times, and you'll hear certain scholars sort of defend that as like, no, the book has errors in it, but what it does is it's got the precepts of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will get you closer to God if you abide by its precepts. But as we pointed out several times on this podcast over the last couple of years, uh, Brian Whitney uh, worked in the church historical department and was comparing Joseph's writings, Book of Mormon text, with sermons of Joseph Smith's day, and there were a significant amount of overlap to the point where Richard Bushman uh, on Mormon Discussion podcast uh, several years ago, there's a quote that's out there that everybody uses when I interviewed him, where he says it's just full of 19th century material, full of the sermons and in the Christian teachings of Joseph Smith's day. And so when I sit here and say this, this topic gives me pause, here's what I mean. I, I'm not saying I buy into that there are spirit entities controlling someone's mind. What I'm saying is that when we look at the Book of Mormon, um, for it to be, for us to go like, okay, it's the most rational conclusion for us to say this is the the God's book, you know, given to us to bring us closer to Christ, then we have to take all of these other books that we're looking at, all these other things done by automatic writing and say, is this the same sort of thing? Or is the Book of Mormon unique in some way, which is the reason you had the topic name, is the Book of Mormon unique? And as we go through this, folks are going to just really deeply realize that there really isn't anything about the Book of Mormon that is unique. Every piece and part of it seems to show up on some level, at least in terms of theme, in the kind of topics that we're covering like tonight. You're, you're muted now, my friend. <laughs> Hey, Maven, can you come back on? Because I want to ask you both a question. We had this interesting thing that happened this morning is that neither one of you had read this article before I presented this material to you this morning. And there's more to go, by the way. But it was fascinating to me to watch both of your reactions on the screen as you heard this stuff for the first time. And I was hoping that Bill and Maven, you could each take a couple minutes and explain to the audience what it was you were experiencing. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Maven first. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was just wild to me because I, 
the number of similarities, especially when you're when you're growing up in the church, all of these things that are said about Joseph Smith as things are always given as evidence of the Book of Mormon being true. And of course, that that there's just no other explanation other than revelation and that Joseph Smith is a prophet. He's got this direct connection with God. And so it always made sense. You know, if, if someone had said in, in conference, say Jeffrey R. Holland, that um, you one would have to <laughs> crawl under or go through or, or jump over the Book of Mormon to be able to to discount this church. It, it made a lot of sense because it really did. That was the only narrative I had. And it really does seem so miraculous and so unique to use the word. And so to find out, I mean, I, I've been, I've been out of the church for three years now, or I've lost my testimony for, for three years. And I, I've learned all about the different plagiarisms, you know, the Adam Clark commentary, all, all of these different things are, are out there and pretty well known and pretty well covered. And those all were enough to make enough sense for me to still debunk and, and get through the Book of Mormon. It's not a problem for me. Um, but this stuff is so much closer than all of that. I still think all of that is at play here. But just just the, it, I don't know, it just astounded me that there are so many similar stories of what Joseph Smith did and the, in the process, um, right down to the interruption thing that we talked about. That was another big thing that really was a, a testimony builder to me that Joseph Smith could just keep going wherever it was he left off. So yeah, it was, I was astounded by, it's not just one or two things. It. I thought automatic writing would be, I really thought it would just be, it was like this fringe thing that probably wouldn't explain much, but like maybe some people would, you know, latch onto. Um, but yeah, that's, those are my thoughts on this. Um, Thank you, Bill. We're only partway into this. And so far I've got dictation, uh, use of stones, Christian theology answers the big three questions. The length of these documents are often much longer than the Book of Mormon. They have ancient themes to them. Uh, the uh, person who seems to be channeling this this either inner voice or outer voice uh, is interrupted and comes back to return and can pick up right where they left off. And others, uh, others outside of them find this to be deeply believable as they are interacting with the author of this process who's channeling this source and challenging them and still seems to come out going like something is weird here and I can't explain this away. Right. And we had another quote that was on before that I wanted to mention that regardless of what you think of the prose in the Book of Mormon, whether you think it is unimaginative and boring and pablum, or whether you think it's really meaningful writing that really speaks to you and is written on a higher plane. Both of those are covered by automatic writing examples. Yeah. And, and I hope is if there are believers out there listening to the podcast, I, I hope you'll consider the question of how do you um, discount these books, these writings, these projects and accept the book of Mormon is true and not see not see that the rational mind would have to evaluate just as sincerely whether these writings come from God or not. In other words, if, if all of the layers of themes and uh, mechanisms that go into producing these works are almost entirely a complete overlap with the Book of Mormon, then 
one would have to take these works seriously. And my hunch is, because I know how I was when I was a believer, is the book of Urantia wasn't even worth my time. I'm not even going to read it. I never even wanted to read three pages of it to figure out if it was interesting. My my believing Mormon brain said, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not to even to be considered. And my hunch is that if folks would consider these automatic writing productions, you will find the writings to be just as mysterious, complicated, and coherent as the Book of Mormon. Right. That's ultimately the problem that I had, which is on what logical, rational basis do I distinguish the Book of Mormon from these other writings? Are they all divine? Are they none of them divine? And if the Book of Mormon is divine and the others aren't, on what basis do I make that determination? Yeah, especially when multiple uh, ones of these, the person doing the dictating or the writing, the one who's channeling the source, is claiming that the voice that they are receiving that is putting these words on paper has a divine message intended for the world audience. Right. That's another thing. Very good. So the next quote from this paper has to do with the fact that maybe it's subconscious, maybe it's external, maybe it's a combination of both. They're trying to come up with an idea as to what it could be, and maybe it's a hybrid. On the other hand, the fact that automatic writing contains material from the writer's memory does not mean that it cannot also contain paranormally derived information. In other words, it is entirely possible that an automatic text may contain a mixture of the writer's own ideas and the ideas of some external, possibly divine, intelligence. Because the possibility for such a combination exists, it is often very difficult to rule out entirely supernatural explanations for automatic writing. Ultimately, of course, there is simply no way either to prove or disprove such claims. To a great extent, belief in the influence of otherworldly minds and powers on automatic writing remains a matter of faith. And what I take from that is that what is true of, say, the Urantia book or A Course in Miracles is likewise true of the Book of Mormon. There's no way of telling exactly where the human element leaves off and the supernatural element commences, if indeed there is a supernatural element involved at all. So that's going to be a matter of faith. And just to note that as we look at the Book of Mormon, scholars even within the church, Richard Bushman we just named, um, I think Terrell Givens would say this to a large extent, I think even Patrick Mason might acknowledge this, that there is a lot of the Book of Mormon that can be explained by 19th century material. And I would, I would pose that some of these projects that we're talking about tonight that involve automatic writing would be the, the, the contemporary material from the author's day would be less substantial than the Book of Mormon. Does that make sense? Like the Book of Mormon yes. appears compared to these things, juxtaposed against these, to be more evident of using 19th century contemporary material than, say, the Urantia yes. book. Yeah. Yes, whether subconscious or conscious on Joseph Smith's part. But if automatic writing, then it would be more subconscious, we would think, if that were the theory here. Yeah. Okay, so the next thing that is talked about is that deception is not required in automatic writing. In fact, it's probably less likely in most of the instances of automatic writing. And Maven, if you're there, 
And if you're able to, could you read this? All right, none of this is to suggest deliberate deception on the part of the automatic writer. On the contrary, the best known practitioners appear to be very sincere individuals who are unfamiliar with the latent abilities of the human mind. When they discover that they can rapidly produce writing of a quality superior to their natural powers, they very understandably suppose that such works must come from an outside source. Right. If I'm Joseph Smith and I've just dictated the Book of Mormon, I'm probably going to think it's from God, too. All right. Now we get to the ultimate example, and by that I mean the example of automatic writing that most closely resembles the Book of Mormon. If you thought what we've seen was close, you ain't seen nothing yet. And this has to do with a lady named Pearl Curran. And Pearl Curran, oh, we already have the clip up there, but Pearl Curran channels a being from outside of her. And the being that she channels is named Patience Worth, W-O-R-T-H. So Pearl Curran is the human being who's doing the dictating and the writing. And Patience Worth is the individual who is giving her this information. So what this says is, but what if anything does this have to do with the Book of Mormon? As if we haven't already figured that out yet. In spite of the association of this phenomenon with hypnotism and Ouija boards, a number of parallels exist between Joseph Smith's production of scriptures and instances of automatic writing. These parallels can best be illustrated by a detailed recounting of one of the most extensively documented examples of automatic writing, the case of Patience Worth. This unusual story began one hot summer evening when Pearl Curran a St. Louis housewife, not a New York farmer, but a St. Louis housewife was persuaded by some friends to experiment with a Ouija board. After some false starts, the pointer began spelling out words. So do we have the words that it started spelling out? I don't know if we do. Let me see here. The first, let me go to my, my outline here. Okay, excuse me, here we go. Okay, well, let's start spelling out words at any rate. We're gonna talk about those words because this isn't just one book. This is a series of books and poems and literature that the spirit being patience worth is giving to this woman, Pearl Curran, as she writes it out. So it says, unlike many instances of automatic writing, these works by Pearl Curran, or by Patience Worth, if we're going to accept her story, unlike many instances of automatic writing, these works exhibited impressive literary quality. A preeminent literary critic of the day, William Marion Reedy, though not believing Patience Worth to be a genuine spirit, referred to her poems as extraordinary and near great. A professor of English from Virginia found some of them superior to the verse of Chaucer, Spencer, and even Shakespeare. While most readers of Patience's work were not this enthusiastic, even the most unbelieving of critics admitted that there were occasional passages of undeniable simplicity and beauty. 
or that it was all good literature and deserves reading on that account alone. In 1916 and again in 1918, Patience Worth was listed in a highly respected and authoritative anthology of poetry. Now, once again, remember, Patience Worth is not the woman who's producing this. Patience Worth is, a, is the spirit. This would be as if Moroni was listed in a highly respected and authoritative anthology of poetry. But Patience Worth was. The same volume, which included 10 poems by Amy Lowell and five by Edna St. Vincent Millay, listed some 88 poems by Patience Worth, several of them marked as poems of distinction. Any thoughts about this? Um, when you said, like, there's a few notable passages, like even the biggest critics who didn't buy into it said, man, every once in a while, there'd be a real gem in there. And I'm going to tell you, I've read the Book of Mormon more times than I can count. And for the most part, it's just a boring book, uh, not very well written. But there were these gems every once in a while, right? There were every, you'd get into a sermon of Alma or something in Moroni, and there'd just be, there'd be just that verse every once in a while that you'd be like, that's why the book was needed. That's why it's here. That's why, that's why the Book of Mormon's true. Uh, otherwise, it's mostly just uh, pretty dull uh, and not, not a great storyline. Um, and not very well written. Well, Bill, there. Are, I was going to say there are people that would disagree with you, as uh, Brian Hales pointed out. Um, these are are non-Mormon scholars um, or just uh, people of note. So again, this is where Brian Hales uh, gave a very useful comment in the section. I'll go ahead and read this. He says the Book of Mormon is. This is a quote. The Book of Mormon is the masterpiece of a most uncommon common man writes Washington University professor Kenneth Wynne. The Book of Mormon is a seminal work. More recently, Yale University Chair of, Histor of History Daniel Walker, Daniel Walker Howe wrote, True or not, the Book of Mormon is a powerful epic written on a grand scale with a host of characters, a narrative of human struggle and conflict, of divine intervention, heroic good and atrocious evil, of prophecy, morality, and law. Its narrative structure is complex, the Book of Mormon should rank among the great achievements of American literature, but it, it has never been accorded the status it deserves since Mormons deny Joseph Smith's authorship and non-Mormons dismissing the work as a fraud have been more likely to ridicule than read it. And one more, 1993 Pulitzer Prize for History recipient Gordon S. Wood described it frankly, the Book of Mormon is an extraordinary work of popular imagination and one of the greatest documents in American cultural history. Nathan O. Hatch, author of the highly influential book, The Democratization of American Christianity, calls the Book of Mormon an extraordinary work. Yeah, so, so two thoughts. One is that for every quote where the Book of Mormon is said to be just incredible and amazing, there are a thousand people who stand behind that going like it's, you know, it really isn't that big of a deal. The other thing, too, is if we're going to look at books like the Urantia uh, book and others that we're talking about tonight, we would also have to then take just as seriously the praising comments about these productions as well. Agreed. You're you're muted, my friend. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was trying to <laughs> Google some of these names and see how many of them are Mormons. Because yeah. I got a feeling Nathan O'Hatch is. 
That would be interesting. I, I was assuming that uh, Brian Hales was using these was deliberately cherry picking non-Mormons. So that would be interesting. And I bet people in the comments will know as well. And the other question too, by the way, they're either believers or if they're not believers, we have to ask them why they don't buy into it. Like, why are they not believers then? And then they have a whole separate commentary about why they don't buy the book as a divine work. And that should also, whatever that reason is, that should also be taken just as seriously. Yes. Um, yes. And Carrie's pointing out that praise and comments on the other books that we're, we've been talking about is also immense. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's the thing is that uh, the very fact that some people have said a laudatory things about the Book of Mormon doesn't separate it from automatic writing. It doesn't separate it from Pearl Curran's productions because knowledgeable critics said very laudatory things about her productions as well as have other critics said laudatory things about the Book of Mormon. It doesn't distinguish the two. It makes them more alike. And with that, I guess we'll continue. So we're going to go to a very specific book. It's the most famous book that Pearl Curran ever dictated, or should I say Patience Worth ever channeled through Pearl Curran. And this is called the sorry tale. So in time, the entity who identified herself simply as a wench dictated a number of novels and plays. These two received substantial critical acclaim. The most popular was the sorry tale, a massive historical novel relating to the life of Jesus Christ. The work generally received favorable reviews and earned patience worth once again, this is the spirit. It earned Patience Worth a place among the outstanding authors of 1918, as judged by the Joint Committee of Literary Arts of New York. A reviewer for the New York Times called, this, called The Sorry Tale a wonderful, a beautiful, and a noble book, one constructed with the precision and accuracy of a master hand. One scholar and critic wrote that the segment describing the crucifixion, a chapter of 5,000 words dictated in a single evening, is a composition of appalling force and vividness and an interpretation on a high and sincere plane. Still another critic, also noting the book's spiritual and emotional impact, referred to it as a fifth gospel, a term Mormons sometimes apply to Third Nephi. So this sorry tale... The sorry tale got incredible acclaim and even got the spirit who allegedly produced it named one of the outstanding authors of 1918. Again, Any thoughts before we go on, just there's my point is that if Brian Hales is going to go, no, 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 the Book of Mormon is different than all the rest of these. Listen to how people praise the Book of Mormon. Well, then we got to take quotes like this seriously. And I also note the amount of content production in a single day, five thousand a chapter of 5,000 words in an evening. Again, one of the things we say about the Book of Mormon is how fast it was written. 90 In 90 days of production, the whole thing was written. Joseph Smith dictating whatever it was, 14 and a half pages a day, you know? It, it just, it's the same story. And anytime a Mormon apologist stands up and says, no, 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 look how amazing the Book of Mormon is, the things we're sharing tonight are going to include almost every one of those things. 
Right. Sometimes um, we get into apologetics for the Book of Mormon and we talk about ancient Hebrew literary forms or linguistic evidence that shows the Book of Mormon to be authentic. If we have the next slide, similar things happen with the sorry tale. You want to read this, Bill, because you're you seem to be enjoying this. I love it. All right. Here we, we have go. the next one. I think we need the next one here. There All you right. go. So like believers in the Book of Mormon, followers of Patience Worth adduced linguistic evidence to show that the writing dictated through Pearl Koran did indeed belong to antiquity. Huh. They must have found Nahum inside this book, huh? While some of the language used by Patience was more ungrammatical than archaic, there appear to be occasional uses of genuinely obsolete English words, which Mrs. Curran simply would not have known. More striking still is the extraordinarily high incidence of Anglo-Saxon words in Patience Worth's vocabulary. While modern English descends from Anglo-Saxon, it currently uses a rather high percentage of words borrowed from other languages. The Declaration of Independence, for example, uses only 42% Anglo-Saxon words, the King James Bible 77%, and Chaucer 64%. However, Patience Worth's language, as measured in one of her novels, consists of an amazing 90% Anglo-Saxon words. In light of the fact that one must go back to writings of the 13th century to find a comparable percentage, it becomes apparent that Patience Worth's productions are, as one scholar put it, nothing less than a, quote, philological miracle, unquote. Right. So how had, on earth did she... Yes, Maven, go ahead. I just had a thought that uh, when we had talked about this earlier was that... I know the 90% seems really high. It is high for the Anglo-Saxon words, but this is someone, I mean, it says in here, we'd have to go to the 13th century to get something as high, whereas uh, Patience is claiming to be only from the 17th century. So I, it almost seems like too much to me, mm -hmm. uh, trying too hard maybe, or to me, this is, I would see this actually as more evidence that it is coming from the the subconscious mind of um uh, of miss Curran because i it, it, yeah it, it just see it, it's out of character even for the century that this uh patience is supposedly coming from but still it is an interesting thing that is difficult to explain and has parallels with the book of mormon so yeah well, right just, because royal go ahead bill and just to note that scholars Believing scholars in the church, as well as scholars who are among its critics, there's almost unanimous belief that the language style of the Book of Mormon is 19th century. In other words, if you go look at and compare it to the late war, first book of Napoleon, um, view of the Hebrews, what you end up with is a book that has the language that appears as if it was exactly written in the 19th century. Right. And Royal Skousen, who knows more about the text of the Book of Mormon than any person on the planet, he's done the uh, exhaustive um, text going back to a critical edition. This is the phrase I'm thinking of, the critical edition of the Book of Mormon. He has located and published on the fact that he finds in the Book of Mormon phrases and word usages that predate King James English that go back another hundred years or so. And so he has 
believe it or not, if you're not aware of this, um, what I'm saying is true. It may sound difficult to believe, but he has postulated that there was a ghost committee of people from 200 years before the King James version of the Bible came off the press who themselves were channeling the language of the Book of Mormon through the stone to Joseph Smith and thereby trying to account for the usages of words and phrases in the Book of Mormon that go back even earlier than the King James Version. So that's something where I see a parallel here as well. You heard about that, right, Bill? Yeah, ex except for things like I do, which again, I except don't have a problem. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a straw man complaint by critics. Cause it's not one that I complain about or you complain about, but just to note that there are modern French words in the book of Mormon too. Yes. To you and you and you. <laughs> now, a lot of people, uh, you know, they talk about Joseph Smith and his lack of education. He could not have produced a book as sophisticated as the book of Mormon with his lack of education. Well, believe it or not, people say and have said the same thing about Pearl Curran, that she could not have produced this on her own because she had such a lack of education. Um, another startling thing about the works attributed to Pearl Curran, I'm reading from the article again, is their accuracy on factual details. Oh, I apologize, I skipped in my outline. This has to do with factual details that are in the works produced that are apparently beyond the kin of the author. Another startling thing about the works attributed to Pearl Curran is their accuracy on factual details, which Mrs. Curran apparently could not have known. A defense like office like writing in Jerusalem. Yes, exactly. A defense often applied to writings given through Joseph Smith. Regarding the sorry tale, one author notes that scholars and literary critics agreed that even a lifetime of reading all available knowledge of the Holy Land, reading that apparently never took place, but even if it had, still would not have given Mrs. Curran the information to produce a book with such verisimilitude. It was as if she were really there. Similarly, after the publication of Hope True Blood, Patience's novel of English life, the London Times asserted that the book reveals a familiarity with nature as it is found in England and with the manners of English life of the older time. Remember, this is being written by a housewife in St. Louis. Okay. Another, and I don't say that disparagingly, only that's, it could be a farm boy in upstate no. New York, right? Right. Without it's the background, a, without the knowledge. It's a person somewhat uneducated a, in a completely different locale than the place they're writing about. And yet in the homeland of where the book is written, folks are reporting that it seems to be deeply accurate. And it's used as a, proof or an evidence that actually patient's worth really does exist and really is channeling this, these words through Pearl Curran. Another British paper commented that sections of the work appeared to, quote, show an uncanny knowledge of English social life in the 17th century and before, end of quote. So whatever you can say for the Book of Mormon, and even if we grant that the arguments made by apologists, and they're not all they're cracked up to be, believe me, said the former apologist. But even if we give them all the weight that the apologists want to put on those arguments, it doesn't make them different than this other example of automatic writing. It makes it more like it. 
Maven. I would say that, um, like this is saying, um, uh, I lost that. Patience's book reveals a familiarity with nature as it is found in England. That's not a claim that can be made about the Book of Mormon because the nature, i.e., flora and fauna described in the Book of Mormon were all, as we know, uh, major, majorly anachronistic. And most of the things Joseph, well, whoever wrote, <laughs> wherever the Book of Mormon came from, um, obviously did not know uh, about the plants and animals that were native to the area versus what was brought over once it was colonized. So um, yeah, so this is something that the Book of Mormon doesn't even actually live up to. Uh, that's kind of a failure and and less than, uh, less accurate than this one, apparently. Yeah, less anachronistic. Yep. Good point. So um, Patience Worth may have actually done a better job of communicating to Pearl Curan than yeah. The Peepstone or the Gold Plates did to Joseph I think, Smith. I wish Patience maybe could have come through for Joseph Smith um, because she probably would have known about uh, tapers. So, yeah. Yes, you know why that didn't happen, exactly. don't you? Evil <laughs> apostate. Well, because it was Moroni, I guess. <laughs> no, it's because Joseph Smith didn't. It's Hang on. Here's the punchline. It's because Joseph Smith didn't have enough patience. There you go. Thank One of those moments much. of loose translation in the next yeah. next paragraph will be a tight translation, right? Nahum requires a tight <laughs> translation. Nephi requires a the word name Nephi being Egyptian requires a tight translation. Kurloms, Kurloms require, you know, a tight translation because it's some word. Mahadri Moriankamer. Yeah. Underlines with a flourish. And barley and wheat and wheels and chariots and metal ore being made into to refined metal it just i don't know yes well before the wheels come off our chariots we better proceed let's do oh it. and this let's is where it. this is where i thought we were because people talk about joseph smith's lack of education as a proof that the book of mormon must be inspired and from god well same thing happens with pearl curan bill could you read this one like joseph smith pearl curan appears to have lacked the education necessary to produce such works Individuals close to her were quick to point out that while she was an intelligent woman, Miss Coran was clearly unacquainted with early English literature and never had read anything archaic. This curious situation prompted one observer to note that, quote, if patience worth be an invention, the inventor is a genius of no mean order, unquote. Huh. Right. Maven. Yes, I'm. I'm just popping up to represent. It's great. Uh, Brian Hales again. Um, so here we have some more comments from him, um, and I'll just read the underlined portion of this first one here. He says, "I think the Book of Mormon is evidence of God's influence because Joseph Smith simply didn't have the skills to make such a refined first oral draft of the Book of Mormon." And then on the next quote here, he says, "If he was really, if he was just really smart." then the historical record ought to document those skills independent of the dictation, right? Friends and enemies would probably have accused him of authorship and recounted experiences where Joseph Smith demonstrated great oratory or composition abilities, but none are found in historical manuscripts. Hmm. Right along with that. And, and it reminds me of the one uh, earlier where the, the psychologist is questioning the person and questioning them in fields that they couldn't be aware of. And they still seem to come through with automatic writing that addresses deep questions for which they weren't educated or informed on the topic. Right. And by the way, just to make this clear to the audience, these 
slides that you have from Brian Hales are from comments that he's made on the Radio Free Mormon Facebook page under the thumbnail that was just advertising the show tonight. Correct. So if people want to find those, you can find them on the Radio Free Mormon Facebook page as long as Brian Hales leaves them up and doesn't delete them. Okay. Of course we have them. I can't account for that. Screenshot, <laughs> screenshot. Um, we know about I have them Joseph Smith. <laughs> Don't worry. Yes. If they disappear, right. just, just, just contact me. <laughs> well, we've got some of them right here. Um, we know that Joseph Smith first started out with the Seer Stone, which he relied upon a great deal in producing the Book of Mormon and in some subsequent revelations. Uh, but then he graduated, we understand, that he graduated from using a Seer Stone to not really needing it that much anymore in order to receive his revelations. A similar thing happens with Pearl Curran. If we have the next slide. While for many years, Mrs. Curran received communications from patients through a Ouija board, this method was not always employed. Just as Joseph Smith eventually began to dictate revelations without the aid of a seer stone, so Pearl Curran began to dictate the words of patients' worth without a Ouija board or any other physical object. Mrs. Curran, quote, simply saw the pictures and the words in her head and called them out as coming from the hand of patients' worth, end of quote. Hmm. Yes. It sounds a lot like Joseph Smith's moving from the Book of Mormon into later things such as the Doctrine and Covenants. Yes, very much so. The Book of Commandments. And I think it was Orson Pratt who gave us the famous quote about that. Um, but hmm. regardless of that, sometimes people who are producing automatic writing go into a trance of some sort, but other times they are completely alert and aware of what's going on around them. Do we have the next slide? And can we get Maven to read this? Yep. Okay. As with other producers of automatic writing, Mrs. Cran was not in a state of trance. Oh, sorry. I, I got distracted. Was not in a state of trance, but was fully alert while dictating patients' words. She would look over at a friend, wave, or even write a letter while dictating. Her dictation was effort, effortless and fluent and could be performed for hours without stopping. She was known to have dictated nearly 6,000 words in a single sitting and was once timed at producing 110 words per minute. In sharp contrast, when Mrs. Curran composed her own writing, the process was much slower, sometimes requiring most of an afternoon to write a single letter. And I don't have I'll it just... ready, but this reminds me of the um, what we have from Emma about Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith struggling to pen a letter uh, as well. So. Yeah. Right. He could not he could not dictate such a book as the Book of Mormon, much less, you know, uh, a simple letter. Yes, that's the question. Eight to 10 pages a day. Yep. And 110 words per minute, by the way, as a typist. Um, yeah, that is burning up the keys on a typewriter. If you're doing it by typing and she's dictating 110 words per minute is very fast. Hmm. Amazing. There's that voluminous output along with being alert while she's dictating. And then again, we have another interesting quote about starting again where she stopped. Now, this was confusing to me the first time I read through this article. The first quote about starting again where you stopped without reading back was A Course in Miracles. But this is a different work by a different author. And the same thing happens here. Now, Bill, can you read this one yeah 
One respected journalist made an intriguing observation about the composition process. Quote, each time the story was picked up at the point where work stopped at the previous sitting, without break in the continuity of narrative, without the slightest hesitation, without the necessity of a reference to the closing words of the last preceding installment, uh, compare this observation to that made by Emma Smith regarding the production of the Book of Mormon. Quote, Joseph would dictate to me for hour after hour, and when returning after meals or after interruption, he would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do, unquote. Those, those look like the same, kind, the same idea. Exactly the same kind of idea. And uh, I, I'm just stunned and overwhelmed by the similarity between the Book of Mormon and other instances of automatic writing, specifically Pearl Curran, and specifically the sorry tale. Now, let's go to the next slide. We're going to read the next three slides pretty quickly because this is sort of a summary where the author talks about the different evidence that's been adduced about automatic writing and how it compares to Joseph Smith's production of the Book of Mormon, as if we haven't already seen that. Excuse me. So, Maven, can you read this one? Yep. Okay. More importantly, the manner in which Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon, and apparently many revelations and other scriptures as well, bears strong resemblance to the process of automatic writing. For example, there is no indication that Joseph used notes or outlines nor conducted major reworkings of the materials he dictated prior to their initial publication. While such conditions are characteristic of a relatively simple translation task, they are also typical of automatic writing. I just want to note that in instances where Joseph Smith demonstrably used notes of another person, we also don't have the scribes reporting that he used notes. You're, you're yeah. muted, my friend. Right, like the Adam Clark Bible commentary. Yeah. And like the Bible. Yeah. And the yes. book of Abraham. Yeah. yeah. As Garth said, they, they, he had this comment earlier. How come Emma didn't say he used the King James Bible for the Isaiah chapters? So, yep. Astute. Because it might not be faith promoting, I think, is the simple answer. Yes. Yeah. So, um, is this the next slide, Maven? Yes. Yes. So I'm going to read this one and you read the last one. Is that okay? To okay. me that I'm asking. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. An understanding of automatic writing also reveals a number of problems with certain traditional Mormon apologetics regarding this standard work, i.e. the Book of Mormon. An oft-repeated defense of the Book of Mormon, for example, asserts that Joseph Smith was too ignorant and uneducated to create a book of such complex construction and profound teachings. But... This is exactly what other producers of channeled texts, i.e. automatic writing, have accomplished. Most notably, the unlettered Pearl Curran, whose moving religious novel won the praises of historians and literary critics alike. If the Book of Mormon is to be defended as a uniquely inspired ancient text, it must be done on stronger ground than this. And then the last one, similarly, some Mormon apologists have claimed that evidence for the Book of Mormon's antiquity somehow proves or validates its doctrinal teachings and even the existence of God. Such claims are clearly made in ignorance of channeled texts, many of which ev uh, evidence historical and philosophical knowledge beyond that of the person 
through whom the writing was transmitted. Since the theologies of these writings clash with the Book of Mormon and with each other, it seems specious to suggest a connection between the doctrinal claims of a book and the miraculous aspects of its content. Right. So just because something's miraculously produced does not thereby certify the accuracy of the doctrine and other things contained in it. That's what I'm getting from that. Is that what you got, Bill? Um, yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sitting here making notes of the fact that if Joseph Smith is using the mode of automatic writing and it does fit, it really does fit this this uh, this lens almost perfectly, right? This way of going like, okay, this there's this phenomenon that happens. Here's two dozen people who have done it on record. Here are the overlap of similarity between methodology, mechanisms, um, the criteria, whatever it is. And then if Joseph Smith is doing that, then there isn't a reason, as you pointed out earlier, there's not a reason why he can't access something he's already read or heard or thought about. So the mound builder... Uh, myths, dad's dreams, Adam Clark's commentary, sermons of his day, um, the language used in other books, such as the late war, the first book of Napoleon. It, it really does. Again, I'm not I'd saying also say, Thomas really Murphy's research on um, the neophytes and a lot of the Indian stories coming, you know, having parallels in the Book of Mormon as well. It also makes more sense for why he connects certain kinds of words, for instance, Nephites and neophytes, right? It's if your brain is kind of working in that subconscious space, it makes a lot of sense to start connecting ideas that don't come standard to the way our human brains think about things. And it seems as though everything Joseph Smith did in terms of the translation of the Book of Mormon seems to fit the automatic writing methodology and um, the uh, mechanisms around it almost perfectly. Right. And if I can go back to a talk by Elder Holland, which I think actually Maven uh, referenced earlier about going around or under or over the Book of Mormon in order to get out of the church. He's talking yeah. about Hiram reading from the Book of Mormon on the afternoon of the martyrdom and turning down the page of the book. This very book. But we don't have to go there right now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, um, but then he went on to say. Why would Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith both give their lives voluntarily to something that they knew was a fraud? Now, I think that assumes a lot that is not necessarily true, like the fact they knew they were going to get killed. Okay. I don't think they knew that. I think that was a surprise to them both. But let's assume for the sake of argument that Elder Holland is correct in that, that they did give their lives for this book because they knew it was true and it wasn't a fraud that fits automatic writing as well yeah okay so having said that now we get to go to uh brian hales who apparently is willing to come on the show maybe we'll talk to him about that at some other time uh, we can work out some details but he's going to be here from a recording of an interview that he gave at gospel tangents it was over a year ago and what Brian Hales has done, it's Rick Bennett, by the way, the host that's gospel, that. yeah, gospel tangents. Thank you. Rick Bennett is the host. And there we see him sort of like spirit right there. I can <laughs> sort of see through him. That's either Rick Bennett or Topper. Old joke. So what Brian Hales is doing is he's trying to do an exercise in which he is listing 
the different secular explanations or naturalistic explanations for how the Book of Mormon came out. And he believes that if he can disprove all the different secular or naturalistic explanations that have been proposed, he thereby proves that the only one that's left is the, the divine theory, the one promoted by the church, the one that we've all heard, and that God and the angel were involved and the gift and power of God were involved, then that has to be correct. So it was in the course of this that he, being Brian Hales, addresses automatic writing. And he does so in really just about two minutes. He doesn't give a lot of time to it. And the first thing that you will note, I'm going to just let him talk here in a second. But the first thing that's striking about it is that he doesn't contest the facts. He understands and recognizes that the Book of Mormon does fit into the category of automatic writing. And he knows about Pearl Curran, and he knows about the sorry tale, and he knows about picking up the dictation where it was left off. And then he's going to try and distinguish the Book of Mormon from other instances of automatic writing. And I'll let the audience see how they feel how well Brian Hales does with this. The fourth theory is, is really interesting. We call it the automatic writing theory. Now, automatic writing, there's actually two flavors. Um, psychologists, um, particularly around 1920, were doing experimenting where they would take a person, and, and what the psychologist wants to do is find things that are in a person's unconscious. They've been stuffed there because they're too hard to deal with by the individual. And if you can get them out carefully and talk about them, you can increase a person's mental health. They'll become, they'll, they'll feel better, less anxiety and things. So they want to get stuff out of the unconscious part of their brain. And they would, they would isolate their arms and get them kind of really relaxed. And then their arm would just spontaneously write. That's automatic writing. That's, that's the most uh, clinical version. And then the words that are written would be used in therapy to try to help the person with things that have been stuffed into their unconscious mind. There's another form of automatic writing, also called trans writing, um, where people are, are put into a hypnotic trance and then they can write or they go into some kind of a mode where they're able to produce words um, that they couldn't do cognitively. Automatic writers of this sort never claim authorship of the words. These words came through me from another source. That's, that's always what they will say. And in this respect, Joseph Smith is very similar. Okay, But the problem is that by showing a similarity, and, and the most common one is a, a woman named um, Pearl Curran. And, and Pearl uh, gave, produced over four million words during her lifetime. Mm -hmm. And one of the books that she produced was called The Sorry Tale. It's about 260,000 words. It's about Christ. Um, and it's been compared to the Book of Mormon. It came in sessions that were producing three to 4,000 words a session through a Ouija board, not a seerstone. But, but it just came and it flowed. And when she'd stop and start up the next day, she, she wouldn't have to go back, just like Joseph. Lots of similarities. But when, when the naturalists try to, to use automatic writing as an explanation, they, they actually uh, are not giving an explanation. They're just kicking the can down the road a little ways because they don't have an explanation for how Pearl Curran and other automatic writers are producing their words. And so Joseph Smith actually encountered this right as the Book of Mormon was being published when Hiram Page, you remember that episode, he mm -hmm. had a seer stone and he was producing pages. I mean, that's automatic writing. 
uh, as much as, as any automatic writer. And Joseph prayed about it and, and was told that, that this came from Satan. So Joseph's explanation for automatic writings would probably be that God is giving him the right stuff and false spirits are giving other people the other stuff because even though Pearl Curran's The Sorry Tale book was about Christ, Christ in it is not the Redeemer. He's not the Savior. He's just a really good teacher. So even though you've got this very long book, it's, it's quite eloquent in places, difficult to read because it's in a funny form of English, but it's not talking about the same Christ that we do. See, it's, it's a divergent uh, view of him, mm. a naturalist view. And, and so anyway, automatic writing uh, has gained some popularity be as an explanation, but it really isn't an explanation because we don't know how Pearl Curran could produce all of her words either. So, uh, Maven, <laughs> I want to know what, uh, what your <laughs> thoughts are on how he's able to discount. Um, uh, oh, give me a second here. I'm going to try to get there. Right. We yeah, go. Me, there okay. we go. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I had a number of thoughts, but I'm sure you guys will go over some of them. But obviously, the first one I think that we were reacting to was uh, talking about the Ouija board versus a, a seer stone. And I just loved it the way that was said <laughs> as if it's, you know, clearly, there's a, a huge difference there. Um, and a seer stone is obviously su superior to a Ouija board, except if it's somebody else's seer stone. Uh, then it's not. So only Joseph Smith's seer stone specifically. That, I'll say that. And then I'll let you guys give, I'm sure we'll, we'll hit all of the same ones. So. Well, the other one you mentioned this morning was, you know, Brian Hales is discounting patient's worth because she preaches of a different Jesus, which, yes. which I think all of evangelical Christianity discounts Mormonism because they preach a different Jesus. That is their exact claim, like the exact <laughs> words. I was astonished to hear him say something like that because surely, surely he has had uh, multiple people, as we all have, say that to him, that you believe in a Joseph different Jesus. A yeah. It, that was, it was pretty astonishing to hear that from him. So, yeah. RFM. <laughs> yeah, this is the part that I heard on the... Uh, well, I was playing it in, in the truck, this podcast. It was over a year ago. I was listening to Gospel Tangents with Rick Bennett, and I was listening to this. And I swear, he said this stuff. This is Brian Hale saying what we just played. I almost drove the truck off the road. I was so shocked by what I was hearing. And I thought, did he really say what I think he just saw? Because I am, you know, paying attention to driving. And I, I got to where I was going and I went back and I listened to it again. I went, oh, my gosh, he did actually say what it is that I thought he was saying. Because first off, his main point is that saying that the Book of Mormon is produced in the same way as automatic writing. OK, we're going to totally agrees. disregard the fact. <laughs> he agrees with that. Well, it, it's similar. <laughs> it's similar. Right. This is the old thing of if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. It's probably, it's probably a duck. <laughs> it's Satan, right? <laughs> oh, Maven wins the internet. That was a good one. Um, but yeah, because you would think that it would be the same. And he, and to his credit, to his credit, Brian Hales knows the literature. He also knows this entire article that we've just been going through. He has to. He's written about the subject. He knows the similarities. He knows how identical they are. So he doesn't contest the facts. Now he has to go to a, an apologetic position. 
because the facts aren't working for him here. So the first thing he has to say is, well, it's kicking the can down the road. And I believe his argument is that automatic writing cannot serve as an explanation for how the Book of Mormon was produced because we don't know how automatic writing works. So if we don't know how automatic writing is produced, it can't be used as an explanation for how the Book of Mormon is produced. Are I we think, still debating? Aren't we still debating even among believing circles how the Book of Mormon was translated? You see, this is a point that I think you brought up with me, and I thought it was an excellent point. Would you go ahead and elaborate on that? No, just just to know. I mean, Book of Mormon, there is debate about loose translation and tight translation, whether Joseph is an eclectic aggregator of contemporary thoughts in his milieu, Terrell Givens. Um, in the Book of Abraham, we still are debating whether there's a missing scroll or whether it's a catalyst theory. Um, in the Bible translation, we're just not sure how much of Adam Clark he used. The Kinderhook plates, there's some scholars that say he used part of the translation from the Book of Mormon and others claiming that there's something else going on. That it's it was a heartland just, he started, model versus hemisphere model where the Book of Mormon even took place. How, right. how, much, how much does a believer have to be confronted with before they just look in the mirror and go, what if it's just bullshit? It cares says we don't know how the seer stone worked either. I think that's a good point. You can't explain right. it. And so I, I think this is a way for uh, Brian Hales to try and circumvent the incredible similarity between the two. That this is not the Book of Mormon over here and automatic writing over there. They're in the same class of writings. So he has to try and find some way to distinguish them because otherwise, you know, it's like DEFCON 1, Danger Will Robinson. So what he does is say, well, we don't know how automatic writing works, so it can't be an explanation for how the Book of Mormon was produced, which seems to be ignoring the fact that if they're both similar, and this is the duck analogy, right? If they both look like a duck and they act like a duck, they walk like a duck, they quack like a duck, then they're probably both similarly produced. You don't have to know how one is produced to be led by the overwhelming similarities between the productions to say that if they're so similar, then regardless of how automatic writing is produced, it's likely to be the same or similar to how the Book of Mormon was produced. The analogy that I came up with for this was, let's just say we find people on the moon one day and they're just, they're, they're people, they're earth people, you know, they're not aliens, they're just earth people who are on the moon. And then somebody comes along whose name may or may not be Brian, and he makes the claim that God must have put these people on the moon because there's no other explanation for how it is that these people could be on the moon. And then somebody else comes along and we'll just say that person's name is Bill. Okay. And Bill says, well, wait a second, Brian, I think there's been a long history, at least going back to the 1960s of spacecraft going from the earth to the moon and people getting out and walking around on the moon. So we've had a series of these. So, isn't that more likely to be the explanation for why we find people on the moon today? At which point Brian would say, well, Bill, do you know all the details of how it is that the Apollo missions worked and the rockets and Cape Kennedy, uh, first Cape Canaveral, then Cape Kennedy and all those things, do you know how that works? And Bill says, no, I don't. And so then Brian, sensing triumph, declares, well, if you don't know how people got to the moon in those space missions, which I acknowledge happened, then that cannot serve as an explanation 
for how it is that people are on the earth today and God must have put them there. What are you pointing at, Bill? I was I was busy talking. Did Dan Vogel say something perspicacious as usual? Sorry, we're both trying to put it up. <laughs> you're muted, Bill. <laughs> oh, I love to hear that. Bill, you're still you're muted. Kidding. Bill. This is he's he's so into reading this that oh, he doesn't sorry. even know that he's muted. <laughs> sorry. Dan is just simply saying the uh, <laughs> definition meaning of what you just gave as an analogy. The appeal to ignorance is a fallacy based on the assumption that a statement must be true if it cannot be proven false. Is that what I that didn't means? I remember muting myself. Sorry. <laughs> I know. Well, it was probably in your subconscious. I was automatic writing then. <laughs> so that that's my idea. And then he has to go to a different Jesus like you just talked about, right? This is the part where I actually almost drove the truck off the road because I thought, wait a second. All of a sudden, now you're talking about what the content is of the automatic writing, because that's not what we were talking about before this. What we're talking about is voluminous works beyond the ability of the person who is ostensibly producing it being beyond their capacity to produce. That's what I thought we were talking about. Now, Brian wants to shift it once again, because I think he has to in order to try and distinguish the Book of Mormon and say, well, Patience Worth's The Sorry Tale talks about Jesus, just like the Book of Mormon, but it's a different Jesus. And so therefore, it can't be from God. I mean, it's a very strange kind of thing. He goes from trying to be objective. And when objective doesn't work, he shifts seamlessly to the subjective. And the Book of Mormon teaching about Jesus is superior. It's the one that's true based upon what he doesn't say. It's just different. And therefore, he tries to distinguish it. Now, that is a distinction. But within the context of this conversation, I respectfully submit that it is a distinction without a difference. I wanted to just jump in here real quick. I This is something that was really starting to trouble me, I think, towards the end of my uh, belief in the church. It's it's just this kind of, it's really a cop-out answer. And I think I finally started to understand that whenever something looks very similar to what we have said or experiences that we expect through the Mormon paradigm, that it's always, it's a, it's a counterfeit from Satan, a very convincing counterfeit. And while that worked for me at first, the sheer number of things that that gets attributed to, you know, um, like the feeling of the spirit when other religions say like i felt the spirit well that's from satan because uh if it led them to a church that's not ours then that wasn't really from god and members will still say this and tell this to other people so again like satan's deceiving people there so with this example it's the same thing um and, and so <clears throat> i'm i'm struggling to think of other examples but I think this was something that really started to get to me after a while. It was just how how good Satan is at producing all of these counterfeits and how bad Heavenly Father is at making it clear to us lowly human beings with our, our lowly intellect compared to him um, as to make it indistinguishable. Like you said, a, a distinction with no difference. There's just so many things like that that it just makes it hard to argue anything for Mormonism as being better or really superior than all these so-called counterfeits, because there's really no way to tell they are that similar. So 
this was definitely you, starting to be a problem for me. Yeah, towards the end there. You said this morning, RFM, that he makes everything subjective. That's so true. As you guys were talking over the last few minutes, talking about the way he approaches it, it made me think of Jonathan Streeter's article on wood tools and steel tools. Because what what believers inside of faith do is create a paradigm where, we've said this before, where the faithful belief that is informed is indiscernible from the critics' uh, evidence for it being a fraud. And in this way, uh, Brian Hales is deeply making um, patience worth's automatic writing uh, indiscernible. If that's, if that's fraud and the Book of Mormon is true, he's agreeing that they're, all, the, all the facts overlap, but he then makes it subjective and he makes it so that it is indiscernible one from the other. Like, we're going to believe this one, we're going to disbelieve that one, and I have a subjective reason for why I do so. And the final thing that he does is he engages in a bit of mind reading, which I would presume he finds objectionable when Fawn Brody does it in her biography of Joseph Smith. But he's going to do mind reading on Joseph Smith as well. And he's going to say that he thinks that what Joseph Smith would say <laughs> is that these other examples of automatic writing were given by Satan or evil spirits and that his version of automatic writing, i.e. the Book of Mormon or other things that he produced, he being Joseph Smith, they were given from God. And you can't get more subjective than that. It boils down to my automatic writing, good, your automatic writing, bad. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to, and if this you don't mind... Stone. What, what's that? Oh, I, I, uh, I said someone one. had posted earlier, my seer stone is better than your seer stone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were definitely, uh, Joseph Smith was suffering from seer stone envy, I think. You you covered a ton of ground tonight. I counted 23 overlapping things between the Book of Mormon translation and creation to automatic writing. Channeling divine sources. Um, it's above the author's competency level. Spelling out words letter by letter, occasional passages of worth. Um, these productions are awe striking. They give people a sense of awe. There's something wondrous about them, right? Um, immense amount of what's that? Immense amount of material written quickly. It can be done in the mode of dictation. It used seer stones of one sort or another to channel. It contained Christian theology. It answers the three big questions that Mormonism has used as it at the forefront of its missionary work. The length of these um, documents are as long or longer than the Book of Mormon. They contain ancient themes of antiquity. They, uh, the author was able to pick up where they loft, left off after being interrupted. Um, others find these productions believable. And something we left off, but I want to combine, I have a separate number, but we can combine it with that one. There are people even today who have received a spiritual witness of these productions and continue to use them as the backdrop of their religiosity. Um, so there's that. Um, there was an intended world audience for some of these works. Um, they were less connected. They were less connected to contemporary material. In other words, Book of Mormon can be shown to be much more proven to be 19th century looking than some of these. Uh, lack of education on the part of the author, accuracy of details in things written about a foreign land or foreign time, 
able to describe that foreign land, foreign time, less uh, degree of anachronisms, which Maven pointed out, moves away from the stone to just being able to dictate directly without a prompt or a catalyst. Um, they were either about Christ or in the voice of Christ. Remember, the one person claimed to be Christ. Um, and that's it. Those should be all of them. Well, that's an impressive list. I'm glad you were taking notes there, Bill. I do have to note that there are 23 pairs of genomes, I think, in the human, what is it, human DNA? Let me see here. Yeah, yes, that's 23 right. pairs of chromosomes. Coincidence? I think not. And then do we have some calls yet, Bill? Oh, I hope so. I hope so, because we're out of material. Although we can okay, go we on. We do all have night, one. Let me uh, put it up on the screen. Is his name before Brian? We, I just want to say before uh, we get there real quick, I just wanted to post this up. Mark was asking about my shirt. I did talk about it at the beginning of the show, but I, I'll go ahead. I'm happy to plug Exmo shirts again, um, which is where I got this. And also who has our um, Mormonism live shirts as well. And I'll put that um, in the comments. And I'm yes, how to say that you been... right now. How to say you haven't been watching the show from the beginning without saying that you haven't been watching the show from the beginning. Thanks, Mark. There you are. All right. So I believe on the phone line we have Alpha. Is that the name? Hello? Last name Romero. Let's try this again. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can now. Can you, can you guys hear? Awesome. Hey. Yep. Continue, my friend. You're on Mormonism Live. Yeah, actually, it's uh, Rafa, like Raphael, Rafa. Yeah, gotcha. Sorry. No problem. I'm it, in a car. It dictates, yeah, it dictates anyway, like um, automatic okay. writing, but it doesn't do that good. He's in an Alfa Romero right now. So I, have, so, so I have two questions. I don't know if you have time for both of them, but um, I'll just try one of them for now. Um, so earlier, RFM was talking about the courses, like the 12 courses he taught in like defending the faith and everything. Um, so what I what made me curious about that was at this point, you know, obviously doesn't believe, uh, those, uh, hold up anymore. I'm wondering all of the 12 courses that you did put together, would you say now that like you would thoroughly be able to like refute all of your own points made in those 12, 12 courses? Okay. That's the question. Raphael? The first one. Okay. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah. All right. Well, so that you know, all not all 12, but almost all of them, 1 through 11, have been posted at Radio Free Mormon over the years because I got, had taped them. And I was able to get uh, uh, technology and stuff to be able to convert those over to MP3, blah, 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 and put them up under the Radio Free Mormon. The audio is not the best. It is cassette tape from 1989. You can listen to 1 through 11. 12, unfortunately, is gone with the Schwinn. So there is no 12. There is no final episode or final class at the Institute. I think I did a really good job. I think I did the best job that reasonably could be done in defending the faith. Without going into them specifically, I think it's obvious that that was not enough to keep me a believing member of the church for more than 40 years. Although it kept me a believing member of the church for 39. Yeah. Well, I guess what I mean is that like, 
Yeah, I understand. I believe that, you know, he did a good job with them. But what I'm saying is, like, despite how well you may have written them, would you say at this point now, being on the other side, that you would be able to refute? I don't know about refuting because so much of what I did, uh, there's a mix of things, but a lot of it has to do with scriptural exegesis and Bible bashing and showing how our interpretation of the Bible is superior to those born-again Christians or other Christians who don't share our beliefs. Not all of it was that, but a substantial portion was. And I still think that Mormonism does a pretty good job in accounting for Bible passages. I think a lot of them get misused, and I probably misused some of them. But the fact that I believe that the Book of Mormon does a good job of accounting for more Bible passages better than perhaps other Christian religions do. And I'm not saying all of them, and I'm not saying there's none that other Christians don't do better with. But I'm just saying that all of that really doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world as far as determining what actual truth is. Did that come close to answering a part of your question? Did we lose him, Bill, or? Basically that well, way. I'm gonna. Oh. I was gonna assume the answer was yes if we lost you. No, no, no. I, I, I had my thing muted. Sorry about that. So go ahead, my friend. Please say that again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So then, would I? Would it be appropriate to resolve that, like, those twelve lessons at this point would be kind of um, useless, I guess, <laughs> and actually like serving the purpose that they originally made for? Oh, I, uh, I don't think they're useless. I think I still think they would be very useful for people who are trying to resolve issues with the church in order to stay in the church. But if they do that, and if they continue on the trajectory that I continued on, that ability to stay in the church will be of limited duration as they learn more, like I did. Right. You realize the weakness in the argument that you created at that age you learned enough new information that your old views fell apart and you could no longer resolve the concerns in the way that you did when you were young. Yeah, and of course, I think of young, 29. I'm a senior in law school. I'm using everything I've got, pulling out all the stops. Yeah. But you know, there's so many things I could say about this. And by the way, Raphael, I have talked about this in other fora, uh, like uh, Mormon stories where I've done extensive interviews about my own personal development from TBM to RFM parts one and two does talk something about this. But I will tell you that at some point being an apologist, a lot of things happen. Number one, I'm aware of the fact that I am counting on the other person not knowing everything that I know in order to win the argument. Okay, that's one thing. Second thing is that at some point, you know, I spend all this time familiarizing myself with the arguments against the LDS church, against the Book of Mormon, against the Book of Abraham, and all the counter arguments, right? That takes a lot of time. For me, it took 10 years. And at some point, it began to dawn on me, why are there so many problems that have to be responded to? And it becomes a matter of too many excuses and not enough time. Yeah. Too many counterfeits. Sorry, kind of off topic. Actually, my other question is more on topic, but... Yeah, I won't take any more time if you guys have another call. We've got two other ones, but um, what do you guys think? I, I want to hear fine. an on-topic question. Quite... 
As long as your second question is to Maven. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, I yeah, the research on this. On topic. Uh, yeah. Please. So go ahead. Uh, the second, so the second question is when you talk about like um, what, what was it? Patient. What was her name again? Patient's Pat worth. Um, patient's worth. There you go. Um, it sounds like it's kind of like a pen name in a way, but maybe a little bit more elevated, given that you know there's a lot of things that she said that maybe the original author wouldn't say. Um, it kind of makes me think of Richard Bachman. You guys have heard of that the pen name of Stephen King, sure. um, where he wrote completely different style of um, stories, but you know it was still the same guy. I'm, I just kind of got got the vibe that it, you know, sounded a lot like that. So I guess for you, if you're familiar with Richard Bachman, um, how would you differentiate that pen name that Stephen King used compared to the patient's work, and you know what comes from that new persona taken on by the pen Well, here's the thing with uh, Richard Bachman and the Bachman books that Stephen King produced. My understanding of it is, and by the way, I've read everything that Stephen King ever wrote under whatever name he wrote, including his last uh, most recent uh, fairy tale, which I thought was disappointing after the first hundred pages, but we don't have to go into that. Okay. So I'm just saying, I know a little bit about it. What Stephen King tried to do was he was met with huge success right out of the gate. When he was at his peak, he starts with Carrie and then he goes through these other books that are just fantastic and inventive and creative. And what it was that he wanted to do was he wanted to see, can I do this again? And in order to do that, he has to create a different pen name of a different author. And it has to be a complete secret that it's really Stephen King writing. Of course, ultimately, that secret got blown, probably intentionally, maybe unintentionally. But he wrote all these Bachman books like The Running Man which got made into an absolutely horrible movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Richard, um, who's the guy from uh, Hogan's Heroes and Family, Dawson and Family Feud, I was going to say, and Richard Dawson. So, and Rage and The Long Mile and Thinner and all of these things under the Bachman books. And eventually he kills off, Stephen King kills off Richard Bachman at the end of the 1980s in The Dark Half, you may recall. So, I don't think he's writing differently, and I don't think it's a way for him to channel anybody else. I just think it's his attempt to use a different name in order to see, can I replicate the success that I had under the name Stephen King? And I think to a certain measure, he did, but not as much. That's my take on it. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, I don't know much about Stephen King. Um, my mom read a lot of his books. Uh, my favorite my favorite Stephen King story is the short story mm -hmm. where the a uh, kid who gets made fun of because he's overweight, drinks a bunch of eggs and castor oil, and then throws a blueberry pie at the pie eating contest. And that short story was used by Stephen King in the movie Stand By Me in the middle of another story written by, I believe, him. Um, but those were two different stories written, made into one movie. Well, uh, Stephen King produced three short, four short stories that were in one volume called Different Seasons. And I think it's the first one that's called The Body which was made into the movie Stand By Me. And I think that story is being told by a character in the body, which does make its way into the movie. I think it's from the same book. I'm no I Stephen King expert. I'm no Bachman expert for that matter. <laughs> I did want to talk about the, uh, I have the caller called kind of a lofty name. And I, I thought that as well, Patience Worth. That is quite the name for a lady. Not that it's impossible, you know, I, women are often named after virtues, patience, mm -hmm. chastity for the really unfortunate ones, uh, faithful, et cetera. Yeah. So um, 
but I get, but I guess it's the combination of patience being the first name and worth being the second name. I did also find that kind of interesting and a bit lofty. I also think that, uh, especially with as far as we've gotten with genealogical research, I really, really think um, that it shouldn't be too much of a stretch that if Patience Worth was a real person in the 17th century, that perhaps some records could be found of her. Um, you know, if she's from England, I I don't know. That was just, that was a thought I had. It's just I wonder if there's a Patience Worth somewhere that would maybe match. That's all I've got. Sure, good well, Mormon genealogy. If there is a if there is, it proves the sorry tale to be true. And if there isn't, it proves the yeah. sorry tale to be true because the exactly. absence of evidence is not the evidence. No, the evidence of absence is not the absence of evidence, my dear Watson. Especially if I get goosebumps on my arm or in the back mm -hmm. of my neck, then I know it's true. Um, all right. Next call is Michael. By the way, before Michael, before you jump on, I just want to note that today in that comment thread on Radio Free Mormon's Facebook page, Brian Hales, who, by the way, is, I think, an anesthesiologist, if I'm not mistaken. And he yes. had Don Bradley do a ton of research. He paid Don Bradley to go out and about and collect all the data on polygamy. Then yes. Brian Hales collects that into books. And so I'm, I'm not saying Brian calls himself a scholar. I don't know if he does or not. I'm going to say that as much as Brian Hales is a scholar, you and I are scholars. Maven, you're probably a scholar too, right there, right? Maybe a couple more years level. if you... So, but my point being is that um, today in that Facebook page, um, by the way, I don't mean that in, in terms of the information, you know, I'm talking about the years spent doing it, right? The Facebook page, Brian Hale seemed to think that you were me. This is a guy who seems to be intimately aware of the arguments that go on online. He, and he puts himself out there as an expert in addressing the critics takes and he seemed to confuse Radio Free Mormon as being Bill Real, and two minutes of research would show that you and I are both on the screen at the same time. Yes, but I'm recorded in a delayed fashion, and yeah. then it just seemed to make it look like we're actually talking to each other. Right. No, that part did confuse me a bit. I think it's kind of you know off to the side, but I had thought that you must have posted that on your Facebook page and then put it on my Facebook page. And I'm seeing the comments from your Facebook page being replicated on my Facebook page. That's what I thought. But apparently he didn't know uh, that I'm RFM and that you're Bill, Bill Real and that never the twain shall meet. Radio Free Mormon. Hi, Bill. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's he, right. He, this was what I said. Connecting. I find this is about the only thing I said. And I didn't even know this was going on. I saw you put the thumbnail up and I'm doing other things throughout the day. And all of a sudden I look back there and it's gone. We had more comments on the thumbnail advertising the show than we usually have on a show. So what I had said was, I find Brian Hales to be a good researcher, but his conclusion-driven arguments lead him into many errors. We will discuss several of those errors on tomorrow night's show. Yeah. I'm just saying, for a good researcher, he didn't know who Radio Free Mormon was. And I would say in 2022, almost on the verge of 2023, Anybody looking into the difficult issues of Mormonism knows who Radio Free Mormon is. Oh, you're too kind. Well, we have to give him credit for not calling me Maven, at least. <laughs> he did think the show was last night, though. So he missed that. He thought the show was yeah. last night? Yeah. There, there was a comment where he said, well, you know, he said accused you of basically putting up, you know, I guess wishing you luck on your straw man tonight, which he said yesterday. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 
Just One side does That's have right. a lot of straw men, and I don't think it's Mormonism live. <laughs> All right. Uh, Michael, you're on the line. Are you there? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead, my friend. All right. I just had a quick question. Um, I am totally happy to accept Joseph Smith as a serious magician who was not very good at it um, from his perspective. But what I'm curious about is this automatic writing, would it be a skill that he would hear about and develop? Or would it be a thing that people are just sort of, your brain has to be a certain way um, to actually be able to do it at all? So like with the Sears stuff where he encounters Sears that his father knows, and then he takes on the mantle eventually himself. It, would it be that kind of thing? Or how, do, how would this play out in Joseph Smith's life? You, and my, I yeah. can... Uh, I can jump out if you want. Thank you, my friend. Um, two two thoughts there, and I'd love to hear what you guys think. But two thoughts. One is that Joseph Smith is doing this folk magic stuff from a super young age, 13, 14 years old at least. And this folk magic would have involved meditative states and seances. So one is that he probably is more prepared to do automatic writing than all the other automatic writers that we mentioned tonight. And two is to note that the automatic writers that we talked about tonight seem to have required very little preparation to move from their normal life into channeling this voice and putting it on paper. Yeah, I think the article said that about Pearl. Um, that I, there were a few false starts that just the very first time she used a Ouija board. and yeah. it, I, But it seemed like the same day that she started trying it, that's when things started coming together. So... I do believe that some people, maybe as far as just their mentality goes, are more prone to that. But um, as we know, like with A Course in Miracles, a very skeptical person can also learn to do this. And I have a friend who, um, who is, a, I, I think, a very skeptical person or would not normally be into this, but as, as part of therapy, actually was told to uh, try writing with their non-dominant hand. So for them, this was their left hand. And... Um, they were able to have really an amazing experience with um, some truths revealed to them that were life changing, like from that point forward. And I believe it was just, you know, tapping into um, their own subconscious. Um, and so, yeah, so it is used in therapy. And I think that is something that you could do to try to tap into yourself as well. So I, I think even a skeptical person absolutely uh, can, can tap into this under the right circumstances. And maybe and with the Joseph, right medium. So, yeah, maybe maybe the the left hand writing won't work for you, but but maybe a Ouija board would, or or some other kind of way. I you know I I think it could work for a lot of people. And, and Joseph also had some false starts. Um, we know that the 116 pages took a lot longer to write than what followed after, and um, there seems to be, uh, for whatever reason, there seems to be this long stretch over years before he feels confident enough to declare to people that he's actually about ready to start doing the translation. Hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, the simplest way I can think of it is that from Joseph Smith's point of view, after he became a prophet, this would have been thought of as a gift of the spirit. So it's something that's bestowed on people as God wishes. I think that from Joseph Smith, before he became a prophet, it probably might have been considered a knack. You have a knack for things. We, we still use that expression today. 
we have a knack for this, we have a knack for that. This is something that we're intuitively and innately good at, and there's no reason that we should be. It's something that we're good at without trying or studying. And we all have those different things. We sometimes call those talents in the LDS church. But um, I expect that this is just something that Joseph Smith had as a knack. And it's possible that believing you have this knack is half the journey toward actually achieving it. I don't know that for sure, but I think that's got to play a role. Um, it, it also seems in the folks that we covered tonight, the moment they felt competent in what they were doing, they could just flourish. It just took off. And so I think it speaks to exactly what you're just saying. One more thing. As someone else had pointed out in the comments, that sometimes when you hear uh, songwriters or authors talk about their process, sometimes it seems very similar to this, not that they were trying to do it deliberately, but I remember, I want to say, I think it was Kelsey Edwards on Mormon Stories uh, wrote a song and the way she, uh, it's called Life in a Box, which is a really good one. And it, that's kind of describing her experience in Mormonism. Uh, and so she said it was just a song, like just kind of came to her quickly and it needed to get out. And so I, these are very common kinds of experiences I've heard from other artists as well. And that was something that I also, just to, to go along with that last question that, you know, made me think of that I think sometimes without trying a specific strategy at all, sometimes the thoughts just, they just flow and they come out and, and we get, we get songs, we get poems, we get books, we get all kinds of wonderful things from it. So, um, and it's just not always something that you can predict. So, yeah. Yeah, love it. Right. And the person, Scott Dunn, who wrote this article also talks about that. We didn't go into it tonight. But surprisingly to me, one example of what would otherwise be considered to be a channeled kind of text where the words are just coming and the author's rushing to keep up with this inspiration that's coming through them is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, who describes it this way. And what Scott Dunn suggests is that those might indeed be classed as automatic writing, except for the fact that the authors took credit for it and didn't ascribe it to somebody outside of them, at least not specific person, such as Seth or Patience Worth. Isn't your hunch that there are probably numerous works out there that have had sort of this style that's created them? I, I, I can I just know for a fact that in terms of like creating outlines for episodes that I've done in the past or the ones you've done, I'm sure RFM, where you just feel like your brain just is on another gear suddenly and you just can connect dots and find the things you need and put it all together in a way that for other episodes seems extremely difficult. I think the Star Spangled Banner, is that the one I'm thinking of? I can't remember, but I think it might have been that one that was just like all given to the person. I think it was Francis Scott Key who wrote it, but I'm not sure it's that one. It was some kind of patriotic hymn and I can't remember mm -hmm. exactly which one, but it's all delivered. Yes. And if I can find this place in here, Robert Graves, if anybody knows who Robert Graves was, he was a very famous author. He wrote I Claudius. Does that strike any bells? Okay. I thought it would. So, <laughs> but he had an experience. <laughs> what? I said that for me oh, I hope so. in the chat. Let me get rid of that. Let me just look this up. Um, okay, While you're so looking that up, I know uh, J.K. Rowling, I know she, she doesn't, like when she was writing Harry Potter, this isn't, she's not, she is taking credit for it, obviously, overall. But I think I recall her saying something about just, you know, the whole starting to write it on the back of a napkin, that she just saw this little boy, Harry, and, and just, it, it seems like that kind of the catalyst to Harry Potter. 
uh, was something that came to her as if it was like a different person or she was seeing this boy and just getting this information about him. So, yeah. Um, right, I'm putting up chats from other people with other you know works that are so, seem to come up this the way. The white goddess is exactly the one backyard professor. That's the one he received <laughs> as a channeled text. Here's what it says first off about Jane Eyre. Of course, channeled texts are not the only form of automatic writing. Indeed, a number of well-known works of literature came into being through this method. Charlotte Bronte, for example, is said to have written her masterpieces, Villette and Jane Eyre, in a steady stream with her eyes shut. Calling her a trance writer, critics Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar quote entries from Bronte's journals that describe visionary experiences and moments of divine leisure in which the stream of thought, these are her words, the stream of thought came flowing free and calm along its channel. Perhaps alluding to a similar process, the visionary William Blake wrote that his lengthy poem, Jerusalem, was dictated to him. Similarly, the English poet A.E. Hausman once noted that entire stanzas of poetry would come into his mind all at once. And now we're going to get to Robert Graves. Still another well-known poet to compose material in this fashion is Robert Graves, who once related that while working on a historical novel, a sudden overwhelming, excuse me while I adjust this, a sudden overwhelming obsession interrupted me. So he's working on a historical novel. It gets interrupted with this sudden overwhelming obsession. It took the form of an unsolicited enlightenment on a subject I knew almost nothing of. And this is Robert Graves speaking about the experience or writing about it. My mind worked at such a furious rate all night as well as all the next day that my pen found it difficult to keep pace with the flow of thought. Within three weeks, I had written a 70,000 word book about an ancient Mediterranean moon goddess. And this was later published as the white goddess. And then he does conclude, this is Scott C. Dunn saying, no doubt the reason such literary works are seldom connected with spiritual phenomena is that unlike channeled texts, the authors rarely claim that the works were composed by anyone other than themselves. But there's a huge overlap. Oh, we've got your song, RFM. It's America the Beautiful. Tim Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim Rathbone. And Jane Eyre was written extremely quickly as well, if I remember right. I remember reading in the thing we were talking about this morning that uh, the eyes closed, but I think there was also a note of how many days it took her, and it was something done pretty quickly. Yeah, so this, this does happen. I mean, this is where the idea of a muse comes from, that they're uh, frequently authors and musicians have experiences where the ideas and the words seem to come from outside of them. So they attribute it to something that's outside of them and that's called the muse, right? Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. So you've got a muse. Stephen King, if we're gonna go back to him, once wrote a short story trying to answer the question of where he gets all of his ideas for his stories. And he characterized it as a little gremlin that lived in his typewriter. So it's just this idea that authors and people with uh, this creative knack or gift of the spirit, frequently it seems so foreign to them. It seems to be coming from outside of them to the degree that they will create an idea of something outside of them to attribute it to. Yeah. I wrote my Mormon rap song in about 20 minutes. <laughs> that long? 
<laughs> oh, you're muted. Thank goodness. I can only imagine oh, what he's sorry. saying. I, I, I just said uh, it took me about 20 minutes to write it, and you said that long, and I said, yep, that long. We've got our last caller. It is Tim. Where's Brian? Um, That's what I want to know. Brian, where are you? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. I don't think I don't think Brian really wants to have this rock. conversation out loud in front of people. So, um, Tim, you're on Mormonism Live. Go ahead, my friend. Uh, you're welcome, RFM. And uh, I just wanted to share a conversation I had with Dean Jesse back in 1984 at BYU when he was in the historical department. This is Tim Rathbone. Okay, so you're talking with Dean yeah. Jesse. Yeah. Cool. I took a class from Dean uh, editing historical documents. And he shared with me a story that when they were in Salt Lake, Spencer Kimball brought Spencer Kimball or somebody brought him the seer stone that they had in the vault. There were three or four of them. And they asked him, Kimball personally asked Dean to see if he could figure out how to make it work. Because Spencer Kimball says, if Joseph could make these work, I should be able to make them work. And Dean studied up on scrying and all kinds of, I don't remember how many books he read, but he told, told me some of the titles. And he said, I couldn't get the things to work. Well, the, pro- the problem is there's a little Dean's switch like, on the bottom. This and a prophet <laughs> asked a historian to make the seer stone work. To figure out how it yes. works. Yeah, That's a fascinating. I love it. A seer. You know, when my seer stone isn't working, nine times out of ten, it's because I did I forgot to plug it in. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or I have to just shut right. it down and reboot the damn thing. That's a great story, Tim. If Dean would have figured it out, which one of the two would have been the seer? Right. <laughs> would have been Dean. Or uh, Satan's counterfeit, I guess, but with no real version, <laughs> since the real prophet can't actually do it. It's just a rock. The guys. counterfeit's all we've got. Break it open. It's just. A rock. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Tim. If you, if you see Brian out there, tell him we said hi. Bill uh, and Bill. Both Brian same. won't talk to me. <laughs> Brian won't talk to me. I've torn him up so much about polygamy. He tries his best, but he, he just won't converse with me. It's it's just impossible. Has he has just, he blocked you? Anyway. I don't know if he's blo- no, he hasn't blocked me, but I bring things up and he just kind of averts them, and he just you know he, he won't answer. Me. Can I synopsize? Hey Tim, can I synopsize Brian Hale's argument with regard to polygamy in one sentence? Sure. Okay. It would have been wrong for Joseph Smith to have had sex with underage girls, comma. And therefore, Joseph Smith did not have sex with the underage girls he married. Semicolon. It would have also been wrong for Joseph Smith to have had sex with other men's wives whom he married. And therefore, Joseph Smith did not have sex with the wives of other men that he married. Period. Semicolon. Except for the instance of Sylvia Sessions, which I thought originally, but as soon as Ugo Perego came out with his new evidence, I quickly switched to a different point of view, right? Because his original argument that he was having sex with Sylvia Sessions, but she wasn't having sex with her actual husband. And then when the data came out on the DNA, he switched in about a quarter second. Mm. Right. So he went from believing that he did have sex with Joseph married. 
Joseph married Agnes on January 6, 1842, the paper I wrote, to have to raise up seed under Don Carlos. That's the only reason he married him. It was a love right marriage. So he married her to have sex to raise up children for his dead brother. Yeah. And I said, Brian, it's a love right, you know, what? Come on, you know, I mean, he, it, he says he married her to raise up seed, and he still denies he had sex with her. So it's just no. She was the cutest of the in laws. Oh, no. Yeah. It reminds me of a song by Squiggy, no, was it Lydia and the Squig Tones called Sister in Law? Yeah. Starts off, Sister in Law, why do you look so much cuter today? Sorry, Maven. To say that I get this thanks, is another Tim. problem with the um, You're welcome. Uh, thanks, Tim. Yeah, with the idea that Joseph Smith did not have sex with the women that we find it problematic that if for him to have sex with, um, specifically, is just that when we're talking about coercion, when we're talking about control, it's always it's not just about the sex, it's always about more than that. And so, I, I think Brian and others can argue all day long if they want to that Joseph did not have sex with the underage girls, but he did marry them. He cut them off from being able to have normal lives appropriate for their ages. Um, and so it basically saving them for himself for later, if that's the, that's the best take that we can give on it. And it's still incredibly harmful and awful for them, um, for, for what he did to them. So I don't, I, I don't believe that he didn't have sex with them, but even if I just gave that one for free, it doesn't it, it doesn't make it not an abuse of power and control uh, over vulnerable people. So you, you yes. nailed it. If you just change the if you do an elder bednar and just change the question and say, did Joseph Smith use predatory coercive tactics against young girls to manipulate them into intimate relationships? And do you think God is okay with his prophet doing that? And that becomes a different question, and none of the apologists really want to tackle that one head on. No. Yes, and this was born yeah. the idea of food storage in the Mormon church. <laughs> How's that connect? <laughs> well, it would, it would have connected better if I could have said it right after Maven was done, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're going to have to remember back a little bit to get <laughs> oh, that Okay. <one. laughs> All right. Anything else, you guys? I think You're that's You're married uh, early I'm... to take them off the market so you can have them later. Take them off the market. Oh, yeah. That yeah. does sound a lot like food storage, doesn't it? Not as sexy, but there's food. But kind of like food storage. <laughs> I'll probably yeah. be out you next know, week. I just wanted to put that out there. So, yeah, Bill and I will be on their own again. You're not going to be what? here next what? week either, RFM, right? I'm sorry, what? Are you here next week? Was hast du gesagt? I bless ja, you. Ich bin here. Gesundheit. Ich bin ein Berliner. <laughs> I'm getting surgery on my other foot. The same thing I did to my left foot, I'm doing to my right foot. I'm just not sure where I'll be. I was on the show right after my surgery last time. I think that was a mistake. So I we'll see, I guess is all I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. Well, make sure you watch it. We're going to be talking about good old Spencer W. Kimball and some of his views on sexuality. I do think that was a bad time, Maven, for you to audition for Riverdance. What? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Okay, so what's next week, Bill Real? Uh, a a his a historicity. No, it's not the right word. A um, historical analysis of 
the LDS church's views on sexuality. And uh, it's going to be a little randy. <laughs>